Chapter 12 of Birds and Bees, Sharp Eyes, and Other Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jill Ingle. Birds and Bees, Sharp Eyes, and Other Papers by John Burroughs. Chapter 12 Note 4 The Woodchuck Writers upon rural England and her familiar natural history make no mention of the marmot or woodchuck. In Europe this animal seems to be confined to high mountainous districts, as on our Pacific slope, burrowing near the snow line. It is more social or gregarious than the American species, living in large families like our prairie dog. In the middle and eastern states, our woodchuck takes the place, in some respects, of the English rabbit, burrowing in every hillside and under every stone wall and jutting ledge and large boulder, from whence it makes raids upon the grass and clover, and sometimes upon the garden vegetables. It is quite solitary in its habits, seldom more than one inhabiting the same den, unless it be a mother and her young. It is not now so much a woodchuck as a fieldchuck. Occasionally, however, one seems to prefer the woods, and is not seduced by the sunny slopes and the succulent grass, but feeds, as did his fathers before him, upon roots and twigs, the bark of young trees, and upon various wood plants. One summer day, as I was swimming across a broad, deep pool in the creek, in a secluded place in the woods, I saw one of these sylvan chucks amid the rocks, but a few feet from the edge of the water where I proposed to touch. He saw my approach, but doubtless took me for some waterfowl, or for some cousin of his, of the muskrat tribe. For he went on with his feeding, and regarded me not, till I paused within ten feet of him, and lifted myself up. Then he did not know me, having perhaps never seen Adam in his simplicity, but he twisted his nose around to catch my scent and the moment he had done so, he sprang like a jumping-jack, and rushed into his den with the utmost precipitation. The woodchuck is the true serf among our animals. He belongs to the soil, and savors of it. He is of the earth, earthy. There is generally a decided odor about his dens and lurking-places, but it is not at all disagreeable in the clover-scented air, and his shrill whistle as he takes to his hole or defies the farm dog from the interior of a stone wall is a pleasant summer sound. In form and movement the woodchuck is not captivating. His body is heavy and flabby. Indeed, such a flaccid, fluid, pouchy carcass I have never seen before. It has absolutely no muscular tension or rigidity, but is as baggy and shaky as a skin filled with water. Let the rifleman shoot one while it lies basking on a sidelong rock, and its body slumps off and rolls and spills down the hill as if it were a mass of bowels only. The legs of the woodchuck are short and stout, and are made for digging rather than running. The latter operation he performs by short leaps, his belly scarcely clearing the ground. For a short distance he can make very good time, but he seldom trusts himself far from his hole and when surprised in that predicament makes little effort to escape, but, grating his teeth, looks the danger squarely in the face. 
I knew a farmer in New York who had a very large bob-tailed churn dog by the name of Cuff. The farmer kept a large dairy and made a great deal of butter, and it was the business of Cuff to spend nearly the half of each summer day treading the endless round of the churning machine. During the remainder of the day he had plenty of time to sleep and rest and sit on his hips and survey the landscape. One day, sitting thus, he discovered a woodchuck about forty rods from the house on a steep side hill, feeding about near his hole, which was beneath a large rock. The old dog, forgetting his stiffness and remembering the fun he had had with woodchucks in his earlier days, started off at his highest speed, vainly hoping to catch this one before he could get to his hole. But the woodchuck, seeing the dog come laboring up the hill, sprang to the mouth of his den, and, when his pursuer was only a few rods off, whistled tauntingly and went in. This occurred several times, the old dog marching up the hill and then marching down again, having his labor for his pains. I suspect he revolved the subject in his mind while he revolved the great wheel of the churning machine, and that some turn or other brought him a happy thought for next time he showed himself a strategist. Instead of giving chase to the woodchuck when first discovered, he crouched down to the ground, and, resting his head on his paws, watched him. The woodchuck kept working away from the hole, lured by the tender clover, but, not unmindful of his safety, lifted himself up on his haunches every few moments, and surveyed the approaches. Presently, after the woodchuck had let himself down from one of these attitudes of observation and resumed his feeding, Cuff started swiftly but stealthily up the hill, precisely in the attitude of a cat when she is stalking a bird. When the woodchuck rose up again, Cuff was perfectly motionless and half hid by the grass. When he again resumed his clover, Cuff sped up the hill as before, this time crossing a fence, but in a low place and so nimbly that he was not discovered. Again the woodchuck was on the outlook. Again Cuff was motionless and hugging the ground. As the dog nears his victim, he is partially hidden by a swell in the earth. But still the woodchuck, from his outlook, reports, All right, when Cuff, having not twice as far to run as the chuck, throws all stealthiness aside and rushes directly for the hole, at that moment the woodchuck discovers his danger, and seeing that it is a race for life, leaps as I never saw Marmot leap before. But he is two seconds too late. His retreat is cut off, and the powerful jaws of the old dog close upon him. The next season Cuff tried the same tactics again with like success. But when the third woodchuck had taken up his abode at the fatal hole, the old churner's wits and strength had begun to fail him, and he was baffled in each attempt to capture the animal. The woodchuck always burrows on a side hill. This enables him to guard against being drowned out by making the termination of the hole higher than the entrance. He digs in slantingly for about two or three feet, and then makes a sharp turn upward, and keeps nearly parallel with the surface of the ground for a distance of eight or ten feet farther, according to the grade. Here he makes his nest and passes the winter, holing up in October or November, and coming out again in April. This is a long sleep, and is rendered possible only by the amount of fat with which the system has become stored during the summer. The fire of life still burns, 
but very faintly and slowly, as with the draughts all closed and the ashes heaped up. Respiration is continued, but at longer intervals, and all the vital processes are nearly at a standstill. Dig one out during hibernation. Audubon did so, and you will find it a mere inanimate ball that suffers itself to be moved and rolled about without showing signs of awakening. But bring it in by the fire, and it presently unrolls and opens its eyes, and crawls feebly about, and if left to itself will seek some dark hole or corner, roll itself up again, and resume its former condition. End of chapter 12 End of Birds and Bees, Sharp Eyes, and Other Papers by John Burroughs